welcome to episode 1604 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Doing okay. How are you? I'm doing okay. All right. So we have a guest today. We will be talking to Bradford William Davis of the New York Daily News about the fact that there are fans in the stands. Don't know if you've noticed, but uh, <laughs> there are lots of fans at some of these baseball games, the NLCS one specifically, and the World Series ones next week. And there have been 11,500 tickets sold to each of the games at Globe Life Field. That's 28% capacity. Bradford has done a lot of reporting about MLB and public health all season. And so we're going to talk to him about how that's being handled and the outlook for next season and what it will be like to cover the World Series because he is hoping to do that. So we'll get into all of that in a little while. We are recording on Friday afternoon before the baseball games, so by the time some of you hear this, someone may have won a pennant. Perhaps someones may have won a pennant. Right now, we don't know, but there's a lot at stake, not just in a general sense, but for this podcast specifically. I want to draw your attention to a tweet from about a month ago. So on September 18th, A tweeter named Brian Height tweeted at one Jeff Sullivan, former co-host of this podcast and current Tampa Bay Rays employee, and Brian said, will you go on Effectively Wild if the Rays win the World Series? (gasps) And Jeff said, I'd probably record it naked. (laughs) So... There's a lot riding on the outcome of this ALCS <laughs> and also the World Series. Uh, I know many of you are mad about the banging scheme and are probably rooting for the Rays for other reasons. But we've also got a, a Jeff Sullivan naked podcast appearance hanging in the balance here, hanging, so to speak. I, I don't oh know <laughs> if this is something that we should hold him to. <laughs> or <laughs> I I don't know. First of all, you know, either of us could be naked right now for... for for all anyone knows, <laughs> I'm I'm not, but but I I'm could be. I'm fully closed. I promise. Okay, me too. But I'm just saying, uh, in, for an audio medium, it it may not make a difference. Although, just uh, the awareness that someone was naked might just change the atmosphere in some ways. So, yeah. I don't know if this could be like a, a Patreon perk, possibly. Where uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's uh, allowed or, or if Jeff would even consent to that, but. This is just something I've been thinking about since this tweet was sent, as it has become more and more likely that the Rays will win the World Series and that Jeff will have to decide whether to follow through on this or not. Ben, I I will admit I uh, I don't know even where to begin <laughs> with such a thing. Uh, yeah. I know the times are tough at Fangraphs, but <laughs> we are we are not. Uh, tying any sort of monetary incentives <laughs> toward nudity, yeah. at least as far as I know. Although there um, was a, a satirical article published yeah. about <laughs> that very idea <laughs> this week about only uh, fan graphs. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> I, look, I, I think um, that how one pods is between oneself <laughs> and one's uh, God and yep. whatever one wants to put between oneself and one's chair. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I uh, don't, I, I don't know what to say other than I would imagine, I would imagine if we want to apply some scientific rigor to this question that the average human person is and has been over the last six or seven months probably more nude 
um, in terms yeah. of minutes in the day mm-hmm. than, than in the six or seven months prior. Definitely dressed down. Maybe right. still dressed mostly, but, but yeah. maybe not. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that in the, in the first couple of weeks of quarantine, there were, there were all of those articles, Ben, about the best way to work from home is to act right. as if one is in the office and dress up. And all of the folks who had worked from home under normal circumstances <laughs> yeah. were like, that's garbage. Don't listen to that. I mean, do whatever yeah. whatever gets you through the day, but you don't feel the pressure to like put on a suit jacket to sit no. on your couch next to your cat. So I think that in the beginning, people were probably like, I'm going to be you know, professional and pulled together. Let us let us lean on that as a way to have a semblance of normalcy. And now I think most people are just like, look, I did not eat any of my own hair today. And so I am doing great. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that with the benchmark that one is using to judge one's own wellness shifting from did I get dressed for work today to did I eat my own hair, that yeah. the nudity has probably gone up. Mm-hmm. But all of that is to say, how would we ever know? We're not know. going to demand it's... evidence. <laughs> I was thinking it's like when a celebrity does an AMA or something and they take a picture of themselves <laughs> saying that they're doing it. Like, oh, would we need to, no. Jeff, to send a, a censored photo to no. show him recording the podcast? Yeah, probably not. Probably no. not. No. I'm, I'm going to respect um, my friend's privacy <laughs> and, um, you know, good good friendly boundaries mm-hmm. and say that, you know, if that is the mode in which Jeff would prefer to podcast, that is his prerogative. Mm-hmm. And I uh, trust him to tell the truth. Having volunteered it, I don't know why you'd lie. <laughs> To be clear, he said he'd probably record oh, it naked. So that's he, right. That's an important qualification. He left himself a little leeway there. He yeah, did not promise qualifier. to record it naked. Anyway, <sighs> just uh, something to keep in mind or not over no, the next I, week. You know, Ben, I try to spend as little time as is possible thinking about <laughs> my friends in the nude. Uh-huh. That just seems like a good mental boundary to have yeah. with, one's, with one's familiars, mm-hmm. for we are not that familiar. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Anyway, oh, boy, <laughs> yeah. Now I really have no good segue to John Smoltz because no. they're all bad now. <laughs> no, someone who is not recording naked this week is yeah, John we Smoltz. verified because of yes. television. Yes. So I wanna. I don't want to turn this into a broader conversation about media criticism because I think we've we've had a good one so far um, this mm-hmm. postseason, and we don't need to belabor the point. But I would like to say the following thing. So for those who watched the NLCS broadcast last night, and this was pointed out by several people in our Facebook group that Smoltz basically like invented Twitter on air. (laughs) Yes. You know, a place where one can assert one's opinions in real time and then receive uh, feedback on them. And so setting that aside, he... It, that part is like him being kind of grumpy and a baseball grump and that um, proclivity is well documented. But the thing that I found interesting about that whole conversation was this. They came back from commercial and Smoltz offered a number of names for this app that already exists. And then he admitted that he is not on Twitter. And so mm-hmm. I ask you this, Ben. Yeah. Why is he so grumpy? He is free. <laughs> he is free from Twitter. He Are people... Walking down the road, yelling at John Smoltz about his broadcast proclivities and habits. Yeah, I don't know. How is he aware of the bad feedback that is uh, out there in the world if he is not on Twitter? He is free. 
Maybe he has a burner and he's name searching, which oh, would be very John, ill-advised do, if he's yeah, doing that. Yeah, don't do that. that. <laughs> no. Never name search. So I worry that based on the fact that he does not have Twitter but seems to be as grumpy as he is, that getting offline would not be as significant a boon to my own mood and mental health as I had assumed it to be. And so I find that realization much more disappointing than whatever's going on in the NLCS broadcast booth. So mm-hmm. that was just my John Smoltz thought. Yeah. Um, he does. He just seems to continue to be grumpy. Indeed, he is getting grumpier, perhaps. The app he proposed was like a, a second guessing app, right? It's like right. If, or, or a first guessing app, I guess. He he wants to make the second guessers first guess. So if you're questioning something a manager does, then you would have to input your call into the app and then it would preserve that and, and publicize and keep track of whether you were right or wrong. Basically, I, I guess he just doesn't want people to come out of the woodwork and say, I said that he should do the thing that would have worked out well or would not have worked out poorly. But yes, Twitter is sort of that. If you have tweeted your thoughts and they're timestamped, it's out there. If you've tweeted that you might record a podcast naked, it exists on the internet. I, I guess it could be deleted, but I have screenshotted it just in case, you know, <laughs> it, it comes in handy for any particular reason. But yeah, yeah I, I'm sympathetic to what he's saying in that I think that uh, second guessing managers is a little too rampant and that probably if we were in the manager's position, we we would all make many mistakes and also a lot of things that are derided as mistakes are not really mistakes. They're just things that didn't work out well or right. maybe where we don't know what the rationale was and we're missing some crucial part of the information. So I get what he's saying, but a lot of the time I am not totally on board with what he's saying about other things about baseball like uh, Grand Slams being rally killers or whatever. Uh, yeah, it's really just a good idea to hit home runs is what we've learned. So Yes. Mm. So we haven't talked that much about these series, and we will probably do a, a World Series preview soon once we know the matchups, but I don't know if there's been anything on your mind this week. I, I guess one thing that has been hard to avoid is the latest incarnation of the Kershaw playoff narrative <sighs> because we had kind of a quintessential playoff Kershaw start in every respect, both in terms of Kershaw's performance and in terms of the position he was put in and in terms of the relievers who followed him. And I'm sort of sick of the Kershaw narrative in both directions, really. Yeah. Like, I'm I'm sort of sick of the piling on Kershaw, and I'm also sort of sick of defending Kershaw because, like, at this point, it's clear that he has been far less successful in the postseason. And I think that there are ways in which the Dodgers have exacerbated that, whether it is with Dave Roberts putting him in positions that he probably should not be in and maybe treating him as Pete Kershaw when he is no longer quite that, although he is still quite effective. But you see Roberts leave him out there too long, seemingly sometimes, and and did it again probably this week and let him face Ozuna, and Ozuna made him pay, although Ozuna has made everyone pay. But it was kind of that classic situation where Kershaw's cruising early on, and then he runs into trouble in an inning that maybe he shouldn't be pitching or he's left in a little too long. And then someone makes him pay and then the relievers come in and inevitably allow every runner that he has bequeathed to them to score. It was Bruce Dargraderol this time. It has been Pedro Baez in the past. It has been many others. And so I think both things can be true and are true. 
that Kershaw's stats and performance look a little worse because of managerial decisions, because of a lack of bullpen support, but also he has been worse too. And even if you adjust for the fact that he is not prime Kershaw quite anymore, even when he was prime Kershaw, these things would happen sometimes. And like based on the fact that he is a future Hall of Famer and the best pitcher of his era and has been an incredible regular season pitcher during some of the postseasons that he has appeared in, you would expect him to be the sort of guy who just would sometimes go seven or eight or whatever. And he has on occasion. Of course, he has had sterling postseason starts even this year. But he's not necessarily the type of pitcher that, based on his regular season performance, you would think you would have to finesse him through and get him out after the second time through the order. Like, he's not a borderline guy who could not theoretically go deep into games. So right. the fact that he has gotten himself into trouble fairly consistently in the sixth or the seventh or whenever it is, like— he has gotten himself into that situation. And yes, he didn't have to be placed in that situation, but also if he were more effective, he just would have survived that, I think, more often than he has. So I don't think it's fair to say that he is a choker or terrible or unclutch or whatever, but I also don't think it's fair to say that he's perfectly fine and we're all making too much of this because he really does have a pretty gigantic gap between his regular season and postseason performance for someone who has amassed the sample size in the postseason that he has. Do you think that, like, let's imagine for a moment that all of the underlying statistics of Kershaw's postseason career were exactly the same, but let's change a couple of the outcomes and suddenly we're looking back on a Dodgers team that has had dominant Kershaw and during the regular season and variable Kershaw during the postseason, so ups and downs, except they also have won at least one World Series during his tenure. Do yeah. you think that that changes the narrative, the sort of persistence of this narrative in a meaningful way even if so there's that question so we'll answer that one and then as a, as a follow-up to it do you think that it changes the narrative even if it is reliant on the good performance of others in a way that is perhaps more obvious to folks than the role others have played in his lack of postseason success right because like mm -hmm. on the one hand that inning last night was disastrous and the rest of the bullpen's performance certainly didn't help but also the the Dodgers couldn't manage to score many runs right. and that's yeah. the other big problem here is that you know the Braves did they scored mm -hmm. a bunch of runs the Dodgers did not so do you think that it would change how often we talk about this if they had managed even one World Series win in his tenure in Los Angeles yes I think it probably would pretty significantly and I think just so much of how teams are judged today is based on whether they go all the way at least once. Like the right. Dodgers have had this incredibly successful run. The fact that they've won all these division championships in a row and keep making it back here and keep having these incredible regular season performances and keep developing talent. It's, I think, the most impressive thing in baseball right now on a team level. And yet, they get dismissed because they lose in the playoffs and they're on the verge of losing again in the playoffs as we speak. And so, yeah, I think Kershaw is to some degree scapegoated for that, or at least that people focus on it more than they would. Even if he had the same stats, you know, if they had won, it just wouldn't be as frequent a topic of conversation, yeah. I think. Yeah. Well, and then that just really bums me out because it suggests that 
perhaps especially for players of his caliber, that at a certain point we come to take for granted their greatness in all of the many games that they play outside of October and have a very narrow understanding of what an accomplished resume looks like. Yeah. So that bums me out. Yeah. The Kershaw narrative, it continues to make me sad, just in a new way. Yeah, and it's very tightly tied to the Dave Roberts narrative, which also seems fair in some ways. Like, clearly he's a a good manager in a lot of respects, and he keeps getting this team to this point, and that's most of a manager's job, I think. And it certainly seems as if the Dodgers front office is happy with him or content with him because he's come under fire for a lot of his postseason moves in the past, and they've extended him or they've brought him back. And, of course, you would think that everything he does in games is a product of some collaborative dialogue with the front office and that he is working with the numbers and that, to some degree, he is on the same page with everyone above him in the hierarchy. And yet he does do a lot of perplexing things. Yeah. In the playoffs, whether it's just sort of treating Kershaw as uh, his, I don't know, 2014 self perpetually or something, or whether it's just some of the, the bullpen decisions that he makes and using Bruce Dark Gratterall as a, a high leverage reliever right now. It just, I get that his hands are tied to an extent because Kenley Jansen is right. not that dependable. And so. Who do you go to? Who's your first line of defense? Who's your last line of defense in that bullpen? I don't really know. And Gradroll had the respectable ERA and he throws 100. And so you would think that that inspires confidence, but he just does not miss bats and he does get grounders, but he just allows a lot of contact and hard contact. And so... You can't really feel that secure with him on the mound, but then who does make you feel secure? Is it Victor Gonzalez? Is it Cleric? Is it someone else? That's sort of the vulnerability of the Dodgers. The one weakness that we identified coming into the postseason or this series was that it didn't look like they really had a, a lockdown option. Like they have Jake McGee. They, they have a lot of guys who are pretty good, but maybe not the ultra elite late inning arms that some other teams do. Right, like, you know, and I'm going to sound silly bringing up this this example given what transpired in the Tampa-Houston game, but, like, there isn't a Nick Anderson on that staff. Right, yeah. And so you, you're trying to piece together the best of not bad options. That bullpen is still good yeah. despite its recent struggles and despite the fact that Kenley is not in a position to be as readily dependent upon as he has been in the past. But I imagine as a manager, you don't have the same amount of confidence. And so um, I I can see how it would be easy to sort of talk yourself into here's the best of my suboptimal options and just, you know, have that not hit the way that it's supposed to a couple of times in a row. And because it's a five game series or seven game series, those issues compound in a way that they just don't in the regular season. You know, if you drop a game, what does it matter? If they drop a game tonight, they're going home. So mm-hmm. I have sympathy for that. I do think that I would like to be a fly on the wall in the sort of end of season conversation that the organization has with Roberts about what is the process behind the decision making here, because it does seem to be a consistent issue at this time of year where you know he's either not pulling the right lever or he's pulling the right lever too late and some of that is likely noise right where other Mm -hmm. managers do the same thing and it just kind of works out because that's how baseball goes and so Mm -hmm. we're less aware of those process failures but it does seem to kind of rear its head 
this time of year in particular in a way that is not solely responsible for the lack of a World Series championship in LA the last, you know, 10 years, but is a contributing factor to their some of their early exits. So it's mm-hmm. just a bummer. Yeah. And as for the state of the series, uh, the Dodgers are on the verge of elimination here. And I think there was a, a lot of optimism about a Dodgers comeback, and it's certainly not far-fetched that that could still happen. But after those first two games where the Braves have just been really riding Anderson and Freed all postseason, and it was clear that they were much more vulnerable beyond that. And Kyle Wright had the successful start to the playoffs, but it seemed like it would be tough to get Kyle Wright and the other Braves starters past the Dodgers' bats. And so in Game 3... When Wright got knocked around and the Dodgers break out and score 11 runs in the first inning and you wrote about the Braves and and their (laughs) brief uh, temporary embarrassment in that game and... And as you said in your piece, like uh, you wake up the next day and maybe everything is different and it it doesn't have to be a lasting embarrassment. And so anyone who thought that, oh, the momentum had shifted in the series and now the Dodgers are ascendant, well, that didn't last long either because uh, Bryce Wilson comes out and, and shuts the Dodgers down and has good stats. And, you know, the Dodgers hit some balls hard and... Things could have happened differently there. They hit about three balls that looked like they would have or should have been homers, but just got knocked down by the wind, maybe. And so they ended up uh, getting shut down by Bryce Wilson, which is not what you would have expected for a team as good at the plate as the Dodgers. And these things just sort of happen. So it, it can swing wildly from one game to the next and it could still swing back in the other direction. And it's sort of like in the, the Rays Astros series, like the Rays go up 3-0, but the Astros had out hit them pretty significantly to yeah. that point and had also hit a lot of balls hard that were caught, which was partly great Rays defense and partly maybe good fortune for the Rays. And as I said on the Ringer MLB show at that point, like if you're the Astros, yeah, the odds are really stacked against you, but you could at least take some solace in the fact that, well, if we keep out hitting this team, eventually that will work out for us. It might not in, in the course of one best of seven series, but keep doing what you're doing, putting guys on base and eventually they'll start scoring. And I guess they have for the last couple of games, not that they've been blowouts or anything, but they have managed to stave off elimination there. But they have not managed to stave off Randy Ovozarena. No, no one can. No yeah. one can. Yeah, I'll be curious to see uh, what the outlook for Ovozarena coming into next season is. Like, are people going to be drafting him way high in their fantasy leagues? Are people going to be predicting some sort of MVP season? Or is everyone going to say, this was just one of those uh, small sample stories where someone just goes off in the playoffs? I, I don't think it's that. It's not like one of these, you know, random guy has a, a good couple weeks or something. Like, he had a good season. And yeah. the Rays, I think, believed in him coming into the playoffs and Ben Clemens wrote about him before everyone else was writing about him and the Rays were like hitting him second or third in the lineup at that point so clearly they like his underlying talent but no one would have expected this so it'll be interesting to see what the carry carryover is because you know sometimes you get like the the Daniel Murphy type offseason and it's like okay did this person change did he learn something is he just going to be that good going forward or was this one wild month yeah, it's it's interesting. Like we had a Rosarena 107th on our top 100, which I know you're thinking, 
Meg, 107, that's more than 100. But yeah. we, we rank all the 50s. So yes. uh, Eric had him at 107 coming into the season and sort of creeping up the 100 as the season went on. I think that he's going to, like you said, be an interesting one because on the one hand, I don't think that anyone, even the people who were high on Rosarena, um, like, you know, like Eric was or like Ben was when the trade happened and has been as the season has gone on, like expects that he is going to put up his his postseason line in the regular season, that would be, he'd be the MVP. Like if he yes. did that over the course of the season, he'd very easily be the MVP, Ben. I don't know if you know that, but he would <laughs> be having a, a, a heck of a year. But there has been sort of a noticeable physical change um you know they they have talked on the broadcast about how he spent his quarantine after a covid diagnosis basically eating chicken beans and rice and doing push-ups and he put on 15 pounds of muscle so there is a a mm-hmm. physical change here and if you look at his exit velocity As we all did. that's how yeah. we all spent our quarantines yeah well we <laughs> put on 15 pounds yeah <laughs> in some form <laughs> but you know there's there is a, a relevant and sort of significant exit velocity shift that has occurred also and so i will be curious to see sort of what people make of his year because on the one hand he he likely isn't this this would be like the best baseball player in baseball Mm -hmm. but he is appreciably different in a way that i think is meaningful and you know the rays have had nothing but good things to say about him sort of since the trade happened and even before it so he's going to be a really fun one to watch in 2021 to see how it kind of settles in because uh he's he's not Godlike, I don't think, but he is very good and was perhaps, I'm going to use the dreaded word, underappreciated by a lot mm-hmm. of the sort of baseball analytics community going into mm-hmm. the season. He's he's good good player. Yeah. And you know, Randy Rosarena is just a fun that's a good name. Yeah. It's a fun name to say, Randy Rosarena. Mm-hmm. It's got good as I said on Twitter, got good mouthfeel that name. <laughs> yeah, it definitely does. So. One little random thing I noticed that I feel like you would appreciate. I really like the thing that catchers do when maybe a, a pitcher's struggling a little or not always when a pitcher's struggling, but often when it is and they want to sort of buck up his spirits. You know how when often there's a, a swinging strike or something and the pitcher makes his pitch and hits his spot and then the catcher does that little thing where he just like, gestures his glove out at the pitcher. I love that little thing. It's like, uh, I mean, he already got the good result. He got the strike, but then there's that like point with the glove. It's like, yes, that's it. Like that's the the pitch I called for. That's what you're trying to do. It's like this nice little moral support, like raising his spirit sort of thing that you get to see because uh, they're too far away to say something. So they have to make a gesture and you can kind of see that pitcher catcher relationship, which is very important. So we're always told and yet you can't always see it because we don't get to hear what happens in a mound visit and we don't know what they're talking about between innings and we can't necessarily read the signs or, or know what they're shaking off or why. But that little glove point, that little like salute with a glove, I really I like that moment. I like it very much too. And it is, I was about to say, I like it almost as much as, but your moment is so much, it has a lot less impact. I also like when, um, you know, an umpire gets hit with the ball. I don't like that part to be clear, but (laughs) when an umpire gets hit by the ball and the catcher does his like, Hey, Hey, you okay, man. And, and they have a nice exchange because you're, you know, if any two people on the field are going to appreciate 
both the risk and the feeling of that uh, it's going to be a catcher and an umpire. So yeah, there are there there are these little moments where you they show each other humanity in a way that's very mm-hmm. nice. And uh, I wish that uh, Baseball Info Solutions would track the like glove. <laughs> yes. Hey man, you did it. Yeah, yeah. a couple more like that because <laughs> right. I wonder if it could be the start of a game calling metric. Yeah, maybe so. I I wonder if I've been noticing it as it's been happening this postseason. I wonder if there are certain catchers who tend to do that more often than others and whether that correlates with anything else that you would want to happen or or to track or whether it happens most often with like batteries who work together often or whether it's the opposite. Maybe it's guys who don't work together that often. Is it relievers? Is it starters? I want some stats on the encouraging catcher glove point. So, yeah, someone get on that, please. Yeah, they need to track glove points and also sky points from pitchers. Those are not, <laughs> I imagine, um, correlated skills. I don't think that they indicate anything, but I want both. <laughs> yeah. And last thing, I guess, before we get to our guest, there were two notable either transactions or possible future transactions that were reported this week concerning recently eliminated playoff teams. And we haven't discussed them on the show. Don't know if you have any thoughts about them, but the White Sox firing Rick Renteria and Billy Bean possibly reportedly leaving baseball if uh, the private equity company that he is involved in is able to purchase the conglomerate that owns the Red Sox and Liverpool. And if that happens, Bean would essentially be forced to leave the A's because he has an ownership stake in that team and there would be a, a possible conflict there. But According to the reporting, at least, he might just move away from baseball or being a a baseball executive altogether and pursue soccer or other interests or just being a mogul. So that would be the end of an era if it does happen. I have never understood the appeal of moguldom. Moguldom? Uh, Moguldom. Sure. Sure. I find it kind of shocking, candidly. Uh (laughs) I mean, I appreciate that there's probably a good deal of money at stake here, and so I imagine that is some of the motivation. And I don't know how it feels to have been at this as long as Bean has without winning a World Series, but I would, I think if I made that jump really want to, to the teams, I'd really want to win one. So I found it to be kind of shocking. I think that I probably have more thoughts on Bean as sort of a key figure in analytics and the shift to teams spending less money, but I don't know that they're fully constituted right this moment, so I will Mm -hmm. wait on those. In terms of Renteria, I think that it is perhaps unsurprising given some of the reporting that's come out after that they were wanting someone who could help the team kind of make the next step in the contention window. I mean, talk about strange postseason decision-making around pitching. I'm mm-hmm. sure that didn't help, although given the the way that that whole debacle was made worse by anticipated injury, I, I don't know how fair it is to right. hold Renteria totally responsible for that either. But I think more surprising is some of the names that have circulated as possible replacements for him. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> do we really, really want to do Tony LaRusso again? That surprised me, and I wonder if that's just some kind of cover for, like, eventually hiring A.J. Hinch or Cora. You know, it just—it seems like Larusa has been out of the managing game for quite some time now, and he's been in baseball working as an executive for various teams, but he's old for a manager, and— 
beyond that, he has not managed in a while. And also he has made some comments about Colin Kaepernick and Ewing, you know, a few years ago now, but uh, don't know how much his thinking on that has changed. And you would think that putting him back into the situation now and with a a younger team, it's just sort of hard to imagine that being an ideal fit. (laughs) So it seems like the odds are against that actually happening, but reportedly they are at least talking to him about it. Yeah, he does not seem the perhaps neutral way for me to describe this is that in any number of ways, he does not seem to be a man of the moment. Let's put it that way. Uh, People were like, I can't believe the Angels are granting permission for the White Sox to talk to him. I'm like, yes, you can. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think that I can see that. I'm sure they're Mm -hmm. like, yeah, Tony, be well. I'll be very curious to follow that managerial search. I just, I know that the Hinch versus Lunau, I think there are some important appreciable differences between those two figures in the the Astros scandal, and I do not say that to let Hinch off the hook for his role, but mm-hmm. I do think that there's some some differences to be had there. But I think that we, as a baseball collective, should agree that um, that you know this season counted, and I don't want to discount the good work and hard work that people put into this season. But if we are looking at sort of some component of the punishment for those guys being you know, being like the the subject of some ridicule, there being an element of of shame involved. This does not count as that. Mm-hmm. And so we should have, they should have to do another year. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not saying that baseball has to mandate that in any kind of firm way, um, although they probably do, because as we have seen, when, when baseball elects to just leave everyone to their own devices and hope that incentives and, and public shame work the way they ought to, they often do not. We should just have another year. You need a full 162 before you even talk about it. Mm-hmm. That's my thought about this. And I know yeah. that it's not gonna that's uh, not gonna matter to teams. And I know that there will be people listening to this saying that isn't long enough. And you know what? Maybe it is not long enough, but it needs to be at least that long. Is mm-hmm. my point. So. Yeah, you have to sort of feel for Renteria, I guess, to be let go by yeah. uh, another team. Whatever, six years or so after the Cubs let him go. And in that case, it was very transparently because Joe Madden was available and they wanted Joe Madden. And, well, they won a World Series. I guess you, you can't criticize them too much for that. This time, I don't know if they have a a specific candidate in mind, but it sounds like there was ongoing friction between Renteria and the front office when it came to the use of analytics, perhaps, and and pitching coach Don Cooper, longtime pitching coach Don Cooper, was also let go. And he is someone who was revered for his pitching coach work and was praised for helping pitchers and keeping pitchers healthy at various points, but maybe not as much lately. And I guess that's just, we've talked before about how gurus kind of come in and out of vogue as, uh, I guess, preferences for coaching change. You know, Ray Searage is a genius. Oh, Ray Searage is gone. And these philosophies can change very quickly and new information and new technology comes in and some coaches do or don't adjust to that and fall out of favor. And so apparently the the White Sox front office, which has modernized, was maybe not as happy with how that information was being applied in games and maybe was not pleased with some of the in-game managerial moves. I know that 
Renteria's reputation as a tactician among White Sox fans, at least my sense is uh, it's not a great reputation. Yeah, so, I think that's right. Yeah. And, you know, yet he got the White Sox to this point and got them back to the playoffs and they went 35 and 25 and a lot of young players broke in or made strides while he was at the helm there. So it's tough, I guess, for him to be labeled as the guy who can get you there, but not the guy who can get you over the hump, right? Because he's gotten them to the precipice, you know, he got them to the playoffs and made them a good team again. And so if the rap on him is, well, he's a rebuilding manager, and then you jettison him and you bring in someone else to, you know, take you all the way. That's, uh, you know, it's Tough to stomach, I'm sure, for him, but who knows? Maybe he wasn't working well with them. I think it was also reported that he wanted there to be pitching added at the deadline, and and that didn't happen, and so maybe he wasn't pleased either. So maybe it was just disharmony there and personalities clashing. And when it comes to front office or the manager these days, I think it's pretty clear, you know, who holds most of the power there. Or, yeah. I mean, they've always had the the hiring and firing power, but I think these days, if you're a manager, you you have to be part of that conversation, and you don't get to make unilateral decisions anymore. And uh, so, if you don't go along, if you aren't thinking along the same lines, then you probably will get replaced and maybe that's for the best ultimately i don't know probably varies by situation but seems like that was what was going on here what they should do is they should have la Russa and renteria switch places and then it'll be renteria and madden in la and everyone will go weird <laughs> yeah right. that was, that's what they'll say they'll go weird And Dallas Keuchel, who, of course, won a World Series under Hinch, tweeted, big things ahead for the White Sox. Oh, boy. Three exclamation points right after this news. So I guess we know where he stands. Oh, uh, boy. Keuchel was critical of the team's clubhouse earlier this year, right? Or or he made some comments about how he felt like the team wasn't playing hard enough or or gave up or something at some point. So uh, maybe he was not enamored of Renteria either. Renteria. If I recall correctly, Renteria has been one of the most frequently ejected managers in baseball. Mm. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know if that says anything about his uh, demeanor away from umpires, but uh, yeah, that's yeah. just a fun little fact that I've scrolled away in my brain from doing a piece that took too long to write. Mm-hmm. And uh, as for Bean, I don't have a, a ton of thoughts right now either, <sighs> yeah. but yeah, it's, uh, you know, some people said sort of the opposite of what you said, which is they can't believe it took this long or or that he was always kind of angling for this sort of thing. I mean, he's been there for, what, more than 30 years, whether as a player or as an executive, and maybe it's just time for a change or, you know, clearly he's had his sights set on soccer and other interests. So maybe at a certain point, you just move on, you get this opportunity. Maybe it's partly about money and about being a, a big business honcho or maybe he just wanted a new challenge or or something but you know clearly forced has been running that team on a a day-to-day level for a while now and they have so many people who've been entrenched there for decades at this point that probably it wouldn't change a ton about how the A's operate in the short term and maybe it was also because of how the A's have uh cheaped out even by A standards this year, at least when it came to treating minor leaguers and and scouts, et cetera, a certain way. And it seemed like Bean was displeased by that too. So yeah, I guess uh, Bean has managed to kind of graduate beyond baseball in a way that a lot of baseball executives don't do, you know, because of 
being a visionary and an early adapter to a certain extent, not that he was necessarily the first person in baseball to start applying sabermetric principles, but he was the most visible because Michael Lewis came along and because he he made a good sort of public face for that and, and character for Moneyball and that catapulted him into sort of household name status and, of course, being played by Brad Pitt in an Oscar-nominated movie, which is now on Netflix, did not hurt either. So yeah. that opened a lot of doors, I think, for, for being in. He just had a compelling story, and he was a charismatic figure to be the face of Sabermetrics, the fact that he was a former player, which tells you that he came from an earlier era because you don't get a lot of former players who are running baseball teams these days. And inadvertently, he helped usher in this era where it's all Ivy Leaguers who read Moneyball. But I think that helped make him a good linchpin to Lewis's story because he wasn't just some nerd from the internet, right? He wasn't us. He was this former top prospect who had experienced Experienced the perils of scouting firsthand because he never panned out the way the scouts expected him to. And he became a convert to this new way of thinking. And he was handsome and personable and quotable. So he just became so associated with this philosophy, like Daryl Morey in basketball, who walked away from the Rockets this week and also worked around payroll constraints and didn't win a championship. My colleague at The Ringer, Brian Phillips, just wrote a piece about those two. Bean just became baseball's best known innovator. And he's maybe had one foot in kind of the the corporate world for a while now so maybe it was inevitable yeah i think that that's true might be time for moneyball too. electric boogaloo <laughs> yeah but yeah you'd think like some part of him must really just want to get that monkey off his back and win a world series yeah and if he does walk away now, then that will never happen, and that will be sort of the, the permanent stain on his record, at least as he is publicly perceived. But I guess you just get sick of it at a certain point, you know, rebuilding that roster over and over again, in which he has continued to do successfully. But maybe this latest time to just stare at that prospect of building that team back up again and getting back to that point and then having the heartbreak again. Maybe it just wasn't worth it. You could spend your whole life waiting to win a World Series and it won't happen. So maybe you just, you know, can't put your other aspirations on hold for that. Maybe not. But I mean, in some ways that suggests a sort of healthy relationship with the game where you're able yeah. to say, okay, I've I've done enough. I've done mm -hmm. enough stuff. Here I am saying that we shouldn't hold Kershaw's postseason record against him. And I'm right. fascinated that Billy Bean would walk away. But, uh, you know. Things run their course. That part mm -hmm. is fair. And I'm sure that as we come to know more about what his role might be um, with this new venture, that it might make more sense. But I don't know. I think I would just, I would need to, I'd need to try to win one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he didn't vow to record any podcast naked if they won, as far as I know. So <laughs> I want it to be very clear to the people listening that we are not requiring that of our our guests. We don't we don't ask we don't ask anything about Definitely what they're don't. wearing. No, it's not a, a normal request. It's no. uh, it's not part of our standard screening process no. for, for interviews. <laughs> I mean, and, and not one way or the other. Perhaps it should be. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but yeah, we, we I don't know. I delightfully don't know. <laughs> what what anyone wears when they record our show thankfully yeah. yep all right so let us take a quick break and we will be back with a guest who was probably clothed we don't know we didn't ask and uh <laughs> we'll talk to bradford about fans in the stands in just a moment we're gonna regret this bit 
We're going to regret it, Ben. stands at the NLCS in Arlington, and next week there will be fans in the stands at the World Series to discuss why that's happening and how MLB has handled public health this season and the future of attendance at MLB games. We are joined now by Bradford William Davis of the New York Daily News, who has done a lot of legwork this year to report on MLB's public health commitments and whether the league has followed through on them. Spoiler, not so much. Bradford, welcome back. You know, good to be here. So why do you think MLB is selling tickets to these games? I guess there are a few possible motivations, and maybe it's a combination of multiple reasons. But what's your read on why this has happened? I think that uh, the Major League Baseball is committed to the American spirit more than any institution (laughs) I've ever encountered. Yeah. (laughs) So much so that they will uh, sacrifice potentially the entire American body, mind, and soul. (laughs) <laughs> with which to uh activate that no really it's you know they they want money man like <laughs> it really it's like that part isn't you know ain't that deep because there's certainly risk involved in this it's very unclear what the trade-off is or you know like like why the rewards beat the risk unless mm-hmm. you look at the dollars and cents of it yeah i guess what so when you say money do you mean mostly like the actual money that they are getting from these tickets directly, which should be a, a drop in the bucket for, in the grand scheme of things. Not that that has stopped MLB before, but it it wouldn't amount to a, a ton of money, just the, the tickets for these games. But I guess there's also the incentive to sort of send the signal that we could go back to games now because yeah. teams are going to be selling season tickets and everything, right? And and so maybe they just want to say, this is doable. It's okay to come back. Yeah. I, I see it as some, something of an experiment with which to make more money. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's, you know, it's, I, I'm not, it's not even necessarily wrong to want to, of course, you know, make sure that the business model, which, you know, is partially based on, you know, uh, concessions and, and, and tickets and all that is viable. But like, but the you know the the concern at hand is of course like that that major league baseball bears none of the you know the consequences for it besides like bad PR which they've had plenty of already yeah. <laughs> and it still exists so like you know but like as far as like legal it's unclear whether or not they they suffer from it but who does suffer from it you know or could suffer from it are like the people who get sick there or not even the people who get sick there but the people who spread that sickness into their you know into their communities given that many people are flying from outside of the Dallas-Fort Worth area to participate in this. And I guess, you know, baseball, when they made the announcement that they were going to sell these tickets, they they went through the list of safety protocols that they were going to require ticket holders to theoretically adhere to. And that's not so surprising, right, that they wouldn't 
they at least want to appear to care about the safety of this endeavor, even if, you know, undertaking this risk, as you said, doesn't have a really obvious good trade-off. But I'm curious what your sense is of how effective those measures were, both theoretically going in and how well some of them have been enforced during the games themselves and how much of it we can just sort of attribute to, you know, sanitary theater because, you know, it does seem like folks are somewhat spaced out in the seats when the games start, but we've all seen the pictures of fans pressed up against the railing during batting practice, which seems like an eventuality that was easy to anticipate for anyone who has seen fans behave during batting practice. And when some of these balls have flown out of the park, you know, there's like police tape up to try to prevent fans from going down into the first couple of rows. So what's your what's your sense of how well their plan was constructed going in and how well it's working now? Uh, you know, the thing that on the positive ledger, right, is that they chose a stadium that has, you know, open air, even though you'll never be able to see it from a telecast or probably even inside the stadium. I haven't been there yet, given how dark and depressing global life is uh if you, if you it is really windy though you know, there's that it's it's very much you know um mr burns blocking out the sun but baseball <laughs> baseball you know like for those who follow the simpsons golden era you know the issue to me is that uh like you know it's, it's outdoors which is good right but like you know we don't know we don't know if these people are buying these tickets together in fact many of them probably aren't you know like like this they were supposed to be in pods of four but like i think it's very you know given how expensive they are I think it's very possible that you have like two and two people who are from, you know, who don't, <laughs> you know, like share a household together, you know, being together. I mean, and then fans interact with each other all the time anyway, you know, it just kind of thing that happens. And then I also wonder about like the suites, like, you know, is, is there a security like out there making sure that you don't share popcorn with <laughs> someone else, you know, that no one is doing anything that could theoretically lead to transmission? That doesn't seem to be especially clear you know, or to, or at least detailed in, in in Major League Baseball's public correspondence about the you know about how they are managing everything. And yeah, the word you used right, Meg, was uh, a phrase was sanitation theater, right? You know, it it may very well just be that, you know, and and we and and we've seen, you know, even though again it's outdoors, so it's probably not as dangerous as again as having a little house party to watch a game, which people are doing apparently in San Diego across the street. If you look at the ALCS, you see like people <laughs> hanging out, you know, uh, clinking beers whenever the Rays do something, whatever, you know. So that's probably that's probably probably worse, honestly. <laughs> but uh, but at the same time, like you know, there are a lot there are ways things can go wrong. You know, we saw in Arrowhead Stadium. For uh, the NFL's opening kickoff that someone, like, got coronavirus, you know, or was tested positive very shortly after being at the uh, at the stadium. And so that led to, a lot, like, a whole bunch of people, like, about 70 people or something like having the quarantine or something, you know, uh, if I recall the number correctly, because of potential exposure to the COVID-19. So, like, this is not foolproof, but most importantly, nothing is foolproof in, you know, life, I guess, right? But, like, but who bears the, uh, who bears the cost? of it not working out you know it's 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 the people and it's the people in their neighborhoods or towns or schools or churches or whatever you know that those are the people who have to suffer for this so yeah we want to talk about that community impact in a second but you brought up something that i i meant to ask you about later which is how what has your impression been of the way that fans and the discussion of fans has progressed on these broadcasts? Because I felt like at the beginning of the season, teams were doing a reasonable job of 
sort of panning away from people who were obviously not appropriately socially distanced when they were visible on a broadcast or were only showing fans if they were, you know, if they were in those seats above Wrigleyville, for instance, if they were masked. But now we're seeing fans on the broadcast, some of whom are masked, some of whom aren't. And then there's this like delight in the presence of um, fans beyond the gates of Petco. And some of those folks probably live in those apartments. So maybe they're doing everything the right way. But what do you think the the broadcast obligations are in terms of how they talk about this stuff and what they show? Because, you know, we don't show streakers on the field. And the impact of fans not being socially distanced properly or properly masked is way bigger than some kid accidentally seeing a naked person on TV. So what is your what is your take on that part? Yeah, I'd rather see a 40 year old man's behind um any day over the start of the apocalypse (laughs) Um, so uh i think i agree with where you're going and suggesting meg you know in that uh seems like very leery but in in this way it's like a return to normalcy which i i think i understand the natural impulse because it is you know it means something to be to be at a ballpark you know any any sort of sporting event or or entertainment event it's going to be so dope in 2027 when i go to my first concert like you know like uh, i can't wait for that however like there's probably very little way for camera crew and the broadcast crew to to discern you know in these like gray areas whether or not people are 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 doing something that is within like the boundaries of responsibility as we understand it for preventing the virus and so uh stop maybe stop serving <laughs> those pictures up unless, you know unless of course you want to associate the idea that baseball has ushered in normalcy and uh again that's a that's a that's a very you know that's my skeptical view of it, but I, I see no reason to not have a skeptical view of, of how Major League Baseball would present itself, given you know the many many failures they've had with COVID nineteen protection of their players, of their you know and staff of uh you know like coaching staff and stuff like that on field. I think it's ironic that that it's even having a global life, given that like their like stadium staff you know apparently like you know had a COVID outbreak back in june you know that led to people you know being really concerned so of course the stadium the, you know the one place where there's a known outbreak of like non-on-field personnel who <laughs> would be the first to have to, you know eleven thousand people wherever however people are, are, are present there so yeah you know i i, I think less charitably you know it, it's the, these, these images are being served and it's not innocuous or benign you know but it's it's for a reason to to show to to associate baseball with healing, even if it is in a very literal sense the opposite. Yeah, it's sort of impossible to separate all these concerns we're raising here from just the the spectator experience of the game. I think it kind of increases the anxiety just to know all these people are there doing these things that maybe they shouldn't be doing. But even if you could separate those things have you enjoyed having fans back i mean just from a a watching baseball on tv perspective because you know like we lost something clearly i think not having fans in the stands and having the fake crowd noise and everything it's not quite the same it's been necessary obviously and, and responsible to play that way but you could see how you know people would think oh it won't have the same playoff atmosphere without fans and I wonder whether you have found the, that atmosphere to be enhanced in any way by this number of fans, you know, or is it just too few and too scattered and too anxiety inducing <laughs> to even enhance the broadcast at all? It's a great question. And the answer is, as long as I don't think about it for more than four seconds, <laughs> it's cool. <Yeah. laughs> That's yeah. actually what happened to me when I was watching the ALDS of the NSA and I saw 
you know, people in high rises, you know, overlooking Petco Park, like clinging was like, oh, wow. Wait, wait, what, what? <laughs> do they know each other? Do they live together? You know, <laughs> you know, do they have the antibodies? Nah, you know, like, I will say that, like, when I was watching games on television, right, on TV, the nature of baseball broadcasts being so batter be pitcher focused, and depending on even the stadium, like, that, that, that's showing it. Like, for example, Yankee Stadium, you know, a lot, there's often just not people sitting behind home plate because the tickets are so freaking expensive. <laughs> and the people who even have them, like, are, like, executives and stuff who just may have something else to do. <laughs> they, don't, they don't go to the game. So, like, if I'm watching a Yankees game, it's very common to not, to not see a lot of people in the line of sight, you know, despite it being a game with a lot of people present, you know, like, in, or high profile or something. So, just, I don't know, just, just a nat- natural rhythm and MLB camera angles, uh, you know, it wasn't too big a deal for me. Uh, just throughout the season, it became, it was, it was just, it was a lot more felt when I went to games. That is when, you know, when I was sitting in a press box, it's either City Field or Yankee Stadium, and I actually expect to be covering the World Series on site, but, you know, not, not entirely sure yet, but that is when I noticed, man, it really does stink that people can't be present here, you know? Like, I was at a Yankee, it was a very exciting Yankees Bed Sox game from earlier in the year, you know, and I was like, man, like, this, this would have been, like, really tight if there were people here, you know? I felt sad today because I saw that the I'm not sure we saw that CPBL highlight out of Taiwan where the guy like stole a home run and didn't tell anyone basically for like the first like 30 seconds after catching the home run and and the whole crowd was going wild because they thought someone hit a big home run but he had you know but but this center fielder had caught it and just like you know and beaked everyone out and uh and but but you know because Taiwan handled the, took the virus more seriously on a personal and societal level you know like like government and all that like they don't have huge COVID outbreaks and thus they can have fans yelling and cheering and, and that makes it wistful for like you know my past life yeah well that might be a good opportunity to talk about some of the social impacts that MLB you know embarking on a season at all has has entailed and you know having fans in the stands has entailed so you've done a lot of really excellent reporting on some of the promises that were made uh, by the league to communities that are home to major league franchises around testing for essential workers and first responders. For the folks who haven't had a chance to read your piece yet, what was promised to those cities and what has actually been delivered both at the time of your reporting and then if there are any updates since then? Right. So at the very earliest sort of like leaks of, of Major League Baseball's health and safety protocol, there was always this small apparent instruction you know no other really no other way to read it but instruction but that 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 said that major league baseball would offer free tests to every community that hosts a baseball you know a major baseball franchise and and that those tests were going to be geared towards frontline workers and uh and first responders i think those are the exact phrasing for first responders for annual and or frontline workers something like that but like but, but like the the implication being clear right one is to by providing this these tests to a certain like classification of worker that is most at risk for COVID, but also most essential for us, you know, for communities getting back on their feet. Like you know, there's, there's a there's a vested public interest in making sure these people are are, are of of anyone the safest, right? Of anyone going to work the safest, you know. So that means you know nurses and doctors and health workers, you think, or you know, or, or firemen or EMTs or whatever, right? And, uh, and again, that was in June. And then, you know, that language was, was including, excuse me, it was, it was, it was in the original, you know, original draft that, you know, back in like May and then June. And it was in the final version, you know, um, that was, that, that, that allowed baseball to return to work. You know, this quote unquote summer camp, like was following those protocols, which included, 
you know, that, that language in there. However, you know, I heard of some, some free testing sites available, like on location, like, you know, like the Astros did something, the Dodgers, you know, had, had that, but like, but as far as like the specific priority of like reaching a certain kind of worker, you know, first, rather than just being a free for all, which is not a bad thing, by the way, it is a good thing, of course, to have it for available for everyone, you know, but like, you know, but, but some, again, something, something following the spirit of the protocol, right? Like that, I had not heard anything about that. So I just started asking questions and a lot of people chose not to answer. <laughs> um, a lot, you know, a few others did not have answers. And uh, Major League Baseball said that uh, that that testing was apparently optional. You know, that this pro- part of the protocol that, you know, for that, that had some sort of community benefit, you know, was not something that, that every team really had to adhere to. That kind of explains why by the time I had, you know, gone gone to print, which is like, you know, late September, though I'd done a lot of the research throughout the summer, basically, but especially in the late August and early September, like there was only one team that had an, launched an initiative consistent with the aim stated in the protocol. And that was the Red Sox who had done this thing, you know, who had started donating tests for teachers, you know, towards the end of the season. You know, that's a, that's a choice that they made. You know, um, I think it's pretty striking when, you know, given, given how many tests were consumed by players and coach and personnel, you know, when you, when someone tests had a false positive, you know, or was believed to possibly a false positive, they would receive like five, six, seven, (laughs) <laughs> tests just to confirm that it was a false po- false positive you know the kind of thing that you would not do do if you were a, a nurse <laughs> you know you just be you just have to go home for 14 days or whatever right. or 10 days or however you know however long again you know based on your symptoms and you know whatever the, the science was indicating that time you need to do it to make sure that no one else would, would be infected and uh that you know that's that's not how baseball did it because you know the your fourth outfielder getting back to work is more important than you know the uh EMT or the person in the ER room, and yeah, that's the that's that's essentially what what I was able to research and find was just that you know Major League Baseball had not followed through on that. They had claimed that it was never something that they even had to follow through on. There was no indication that that, that it was optional, but you know, but something they said after the fact. And you know, and I certainly feel a type of way about it, and I hope that people, especially the people that you know might be might that that could really benefit from being able to freely access those tests could would know about that so that they could, you know, just kind of know what their uh, local team thinks of them. Yeah. And you had done some reporting even before the season started about whether MLB was coordinating with local officials, right? And a lot of them, it seemed like just weren't really aware of what MLB was planning. And I don't know how much that came back to by either baseball or those communities or, or how much it ended up mattering, but it seemed like it was just sort of full speed ahead, at least at the time. Right. I, I guess big picture, you know, I, I, MLB sort of avoided some of the worst case scenarios, I suppose, you know, when you when it comes to, say, a player or, or some team member, you know, getting seriously ill or, or even dying. I mean, you know, the nightmare scenarios that we were worried about, but you never know really if there were other issues or other people who contracted COVID because of baseball. It, it's, you know, you're sort of reporting on the less visible aspects of this that are easy to sweep under the rug, yeah. I guess. So, you know, at the end of the season, we talked about how it went briefly and it went, I guess, a little bit better than expected in some ways, or or at least than you might have thought three days into the season when everyone in the Marlins got it and it looked like, you know, it was done possibly at that point. But in the larger sense and, you know, everyone who's kind of in MLB's orbit and affected by it, 
Do you think there were a lot of hidden costs to that, or do you think it it went about as well as could have been expected if you were going to go ahead with it? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I think after the Marlins and Cardinals, things certainly got better as they tightened the protocol, which, um, like, as in, like, the player conduct and everything, which I think should also be, a, in, in some sense, a demerit to the league, in that it was not especially clear as, like, what you should do in the event of an outbreak, which is why, like, teams like the Marlins are like, well, okay, I guess we should play, right? And then, and, and not only that, but, but the league, you know, knew about the multiple positive cases and was like, yeah, you could play, you know, like, that's, you know, that, that, that is not, in my opinion, Don Manley's fault, you know, purely though, you know, perhaps he should know better, but like, you know, but if he, sh- if, if the manager should know better, how much more should the doctors and, and scientists that ostensibly on MLB payroll, you know, who are supposed to make those decisions, you know, and like, that's, you know, that's what happened, you know? And so like, I don't, you know, like, like for, from my understanding is that the Cardinals may have behaved improperly, you know, like, like, like in ways that we would all like clock as like clearly irresponsible, you know, those are again, you know, rumors and, and discussions and things being hinted at, but like, you know, but though nothing I can publicly confirm yet, but like, but the Marlins, like, from what, from what I've heard and understood, like, were not doing egregious things. They were like, you know, as Derek Jeter said during his like, you know, back to work conference, basically was like, you know, they went out for coffee, you know, <laughs> like they, you know, they hung out with each other in the hotel room, you know, teammates, which is just like a, a normal human sort of thing. And the kind of thing that, frankly, fans are will be doing when they go to these games, you know, players are not are, are hold to a much higher standard and might force to make much bigger sacrifices for their safety, which shows that, you know, again, is, is fan safety really the priority if they're not being asked to bubble up themselves, you know, but I digress, like, so to answer your question, man, I, I mean, things did get better on the field and everything. And, you know, in, the, in these tests, uh, tens of thousands used to cover, you know, baseball personnel, like, is... You know, not in of itself something that would turn the course of, you know, of the country around, right? But, you know, but it, it's more of, like, in the individual, like, situations. I think Zach Benny made this point. Like, you know, it stinks when it's, you know, your grandmother waiting online, you know, for four hours to get a COVID test only to find out the results 13 days after you take a test. And then you realize, oh, but, you know, like Clayton Kershaw or whatever got it, you know, four times last week. Again, no, no specific beef with Clayton Kershaw, but just, but just the reality, you know. Uh, and I, I say that actually because someone in Dodgers PR got mad at me <laughs> because I, I side, I side to Clayton oh, Kershaw no. in, a, in a rhetorical sense, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, to use like you know celebrities get this and you don't, you know, like and he's like, well, it's Kershaw, so whatever. Like he's like passive aggressive, funny. But um, next time I'll use Muncie or something so that it's like less <laughs> less of a household name, you know, Kike. <laughs> Beatty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> is it, are there any passionate Brusadar uh, Gravel fans? Like, you know. Yeah, so like, you know, it's it got better, right? But like, you know, you have to zoom out, right? Because the there was never a place where in this country, you know, where we had really particularly safe, like, return for the sport. Hence the outbreaks early on. And like, where all sorts of resources could have been directed towards you know, the public good, including, you know, Major League Baseball's considerable resources in the efforts of creating a completely safe place where you could, you know, re- re- start reintroducing tens of thousands of fans without, like, some concern, you know, and, like, like shooting Texas, you know, where, like, every, <laughs> where, like, things are, like, very bad and getting worse. Um, again, like, that, you know, that we never reached that place, you know, as a nation, you know, in, in both cities, if not all of the cities, you know, like, New York is on a, on the better side, but even, you know, but it was after tremendous cost of tens of thousands of people dying here. 
like where I live, you know, like, and so, um, we never, you know, we never got there, but we let baseball cut the line as a, as a society, our government, you know? And so like, and so just because baseball had, has had, you know, let's say like five, six good weeks now of like not having like serious COVID outbreaks, the, the fact that baseball was allowed to exist in the first place is the indictment, you know, that so many resources that, that people need, need right now were allowed to be in deposit that, that government health officials were constantly rebuffed or left out of the planning decision-making. Something that was true even in, in the first piece I wrote about this, you know, about the government side of this, like, you know, showed, showed a lack of, you know, involvement. And the second one did as well, too, where, you know, where, where there were government officials openly disputing team testimonies of, like, how <laughs> involved, you know, they were, you know, of, of, of even correspondence, you know, team A saying, oh, yeah, we talked to them, and, and, and government official B saying, Mm, no, <laughs> that's never happened. Like that's you know like like that that is where that that is what I hope people reading some of the, some some of these you know, some of these stories that I, I and others have been reporting on. You know I think I think both uh, Evan Drellich at the Athletic and Stephanie Afstein at Sports Illustrated both like released very good pieces actually about the fan situation. Hannah Kaiser as well of, of Yahoo. Yeah. Like you know all, all three of them did did I think very good work on on that fan situation. But like I hope that looking at all the reporting that you zoom out and you and you ask yourself like. Why was this allowed to exist when we know that there are so many other problems, so many places that needed this first? You know, why was baseball made? Why was baseball made the priority when we could have just when, when baseball's resources, you know, that they were able to procure could have been used towards a safe return for baseball? Why did we do this backwards? Why are we still doing this backwards? And why and why the hell are 11,000 people being guinea pigged for more money to be made in 2021? Well, and I guess that's a good transition to 2021 because I think that we're all of the opinion that given the the relative success of the season, and by that I I will sort of adhere to the same one that Ben did, where the no very worst case scenario did not come to pass. <laughs> no one, <laughs> right no, no one we know died. No, no. one we know died. <laughs> uh, gosh, and so that I imagine is and the fan experience this postseason is going to be uh, used as justification for a fan experience in 2021. Craig Calcaterra and his newsletter sort of detailed a survey that was sent to fans trying to assess what they would need to see in the ballpark in order to feel comfortable uh, attending games in person in 2021. So it seems like there is sort of an inevitability that we are are moving toward here, that there will be, you know, absent a, a legal mandate to the contrary, some sort of fan experience next next season. And so I guess to the extent that you've started reporting on this, do you have a sense of whether any of the cities that host MLB teams are starting to help those teams plan for the eventuality of fans next year? And if not, what do you think would actually need to happen either from a government mandate perspective or in terms of PR for baseball to consider a fanless 2021? Yeah, I mean, um, as far as your first question about like, you know, our government's planning with this stuff. I am personally not privy to the details of that. You know, me right now. Like, perhaps something I should work on. Maybe for an off-season idea. Um, but like, you know, um, I'm not. You know, uh, I'm not. You know, as I said, but I, I'm not personally privy to that. I can I can recall like in in New York State, which I'm, of course most familiar with this since since I live here. But like, you know, uh, Governor Cuomo expressing in July that you know, or summer earlier, you know, maybe May, even I don't know. But like, you know, the hope. Four fans back in seats, you know, he he's he's close friends with the soon to be former Mets owners Will Pons, you know, like he's you know, he's got Randy Levine on his like state level coronavirus task force, you know, 
like sports entertainment, kind of like or business, or whatever. Randy Levine being the team president of New York Yankees, just for those who are unaware. Like, so like he, you know, he expressed an interest in that. Of course, there 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 are significant financial benefits towards that for the state, but not primarily the state. Problem, honestly, probably just for <laughs> mostly for the team, but uh, the teams involved. But yeah, so I, I you know I, I'm sure there's an interest, and, and it's an and it's a natural interest because again, it's good to be able to go to baseball games. It's good to be able to go to concerts. It's good to be able to go to restaurants inside. You know that stuff is dope, and and school. You know, shoot, right, church, whatever, like or whatever religious, you know, sort of gathering you do. Don't participate in what whatever, whatever you know the gym. Like it, it's all good, right? But like, but it has just has to be done in a way that is safe and appropriate and follows smart scientific mandates so that we don't create more problems and that people aren't people's lives are not sacrificed on the altar of you know making money for someone else that is you know that that's the thing right and so um you know i'm, I'm sure these conver- i would like to think these conversations are happening with you know somewhere but what i would doubt is that local government of government health officials that express dissent or concern are being in mass really included in the planning of this kind of thing. But that, that is speculatory, but it's based on, you know, this entire year of hearing constantly from government officials that they were unaware, you know, and expressing their disappointment about that publicly or privately, you know, about like not being clued in on what Major League Baseball plans to do in their city, you know, whether whether or not they are dropping a, a COVID bomb among the people that they're supposed to be taking care of. That's that's my that's my answer. Is that, you know, is that, is, that I, is that I do not know the details here, but based, but based off of the year I've seen, you know, like, I'm sure it's happening some on some level, but I doubt, you know, but I doubt that every party that should be involved, you know, has every stakeholder has uh, equal participation in making sure 2021 makes makes sense for a, uh, a return to fans or travel or whatever. And lastly, because you said that you're hoping to cover the World Series in person, right? So if you're able to do that, what sort of stories are you hoping to tell or, or what is uh, in it for you, I guess, to go and, and do that in person as opposed to doing it from home? Or how would that differ from covering a series uh, under normal circumstances? Yeah. So, you know, this this would be actually the first World Series I cover in person if I, you know, if I do, in fact, go. Mm-hmm. Perhaps I'm no better than the fan uh, <laughs> flying out from, you know, there to, from wherever to, to where I'm going. I think that there are Again, for people who are who again who are unaware of exactly how reporting works right now, like you know, back in the day, you'd be able to go to locker rooms pretty regularly, you know, uh, for regular season before and after games, and then even during the playoffs after a game, you you like get they like chop it up with players, you know, about their lives or the game or whatever, you know. That doesn't happen now. It's just, it's it's a very curated Zoom where the PR people for every team get you know decide who uh, who gets to talk, you know, and so that's you know so so that's limited, but. I think the opportunities are to talk to, you know, the communities involved, you know, with this and, and to get an idea of like, how do you feel that, you know, that does it, does it lift your spirits or does it, you know, depress them, you know, to know this is happening. What do you, you know, um, what do you hope for next year? You know, even maintain, you know, your social connection to baseball with people that you, you know, that it may not be wise to see in the same, you know, in the same ways that you used to, you know what I mean? Like, do you, Mm-hmm. Have you thought? Have you have you created a little backyard garage thing where everyone's you know can wear a mask and and have air making you know I don't know uh, circulating so that no one gets sick or, or you know or do you do something a little more risky or less risky or I don't know you know like I, I think those are I think those are interesting opportunities with what you know um given that you know this is a, a once in a lifetime sort of thing of uh you know of a World Series that everyone knew was going to be in one place and how a city and uh, and its people 
like uh deal with that and i think Arlington is also especially interesting given that you know that there was very mixed reviews even before the stadium was built about the stadium existing there in the first place you know like that that was a a real issue you know uh, uh how much money and tax dollars are being spent towards that and so uh you know so i'm, I'm hoping to have those kind of kind of, kind of stories you know no one no one listening to effectively well steal that my ideas thank you <laughs> but yes that's what i hope to do all right. Well, we're glad you're on that beat as well as all the other baseball beats and people can and should read Bradford at the Daily News. You can find him on Twitter at underscore be Willie. Thank you very much for making time to talk to us today. Thank you guys for having me. Okay, that'll do it for today and for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening. If there is baseball over the weekend, we will try to do one of our Patreon live streams, so stay tuned to your Patreon inboxes if you are a supporter at the $10 level and up. If you're not yet, you can become one. Just go to patreon.com slash effectivelywild, sign up to pledge some small monthly amount, and help keep the podcast going while getting access to some perks, as have the following five listeners. Joseph, Gary Jacobs, Aaron M. Mori, Rob Fibbs and Jason George thanks to all of you you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild you can rate review and subscribe to effectively wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcast or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance and we will be back with another episode to preview the World Series early next week Talk to you then. Oh.